the night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, rank them on our big board, and thus create a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight, brother? I'm doing, I'm doing well. I have two important things to discuss. Uh, the first is that uh, in the last couple of weeks, I have gotten a new car. I have finally gotten new plates on the car. Being in Huntsville, being firmly team Operation Paperclip, not all Nazis are bad Nazis. Huntsville and Alabama, more generically, has, uh, has a space exploration license plate. And uh, I got one of those and uh, I got it personalized 1701E. Nice. Very the so- nice. The sovereign class. Built to fuck. Love the Enterprise E. Uh, my first choice was uh, IDIC, Infinite Diversity and in, in Infinite Combinations, but that shit was taken. Surprising that so many of the Star Trek references on the space plate were taken. Uh, I should have had uh, some more backup plans, but I'm absolutely happy with 1701E. I'm thrilled for that. Second item to pass along Weird Al came through town. Went to the Weird Al show Friday. Oh, awesome. Here's the thing, though. He only played his original stuff. Really? Really? Huh. It was weird as fuck. You know, look, I'm I'm not saying his original stuff is bad, but they're always just kind of the interludes on his various albums, right? They're just kind of like, they bring you down from all the good stuff. And you go to a show... And it's entirely all that stuff. Most profoundly weird thing I uh, I have ever been to. And and apparently, like, he doesn't make any bones about it. Like, he advertises the tour. I mean, I didn't know anything about this because I didn't bother to look it up. Like, the tour has a Wikipedia page. And the, and the Wikipedia page is like, yeah, he just plays the original stuff. And I'm like, okay. Well, that's something. It certainly was. I can't remember if he's already done the Philly stop on this tour. Or the Philly stop is upcoming. Huh. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm now thinking about all of the, the <laughs> like what I mean, I, I'd like some biggest ball of twine in Minnesota, I suppose. And I'm trying to think of some of the other, everything you know is wrong. Like uh, any of the other ones that stick in my head, but, but it's the equivalent of going to see somebody and they're like, we're going to play just the new stuff. Just the new stuff. Just B-sides. It, it's like, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it, you know, you're going to see the, the Rolling Stones on their final farewell, really, we mean it this time tour. It's no satisfaction, no sympathy for the devil. It's only the stuff from those albums we released in like the 90s. Yeah, it's just our country album. But, 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 we are a comic book podcast. As much as we often attempt to derail it towards Star Trek and anything else. And uh, tonight, tonight is another Patreon request. Tonight is the first request from Patreon backer John Wickham. And he specifically had asked for a story featuring Batman and Swamp Thing. And so tonight we are doing three stories of Batman and Swamp Thing. Swampy. We are starting off with the story that John requested which is The Garden of Earthly Delights. This is Swamp Thing, Volume 2, Numbers 52 and 53. 
The writer is Alan Moore with pencils by Rick Veitch and John Totalbin, inks by Alfredo Alcala and Totalbin, colors by Tatiana Wood, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Karen Berger. The cover dates are September and October of 1986. With his love, Abigail, imprisoned in Gotham, Swamp Thing heads to the city, and nothing, not even the Batman, will stand between him and retrieving her. This is the seminal Swamp Thing run. This is the run that changes everything that everyone knew about Swamp Thing. And it'll be fascinating to continue on tonight as we have one other story set after this and one other story published before it and see how different Swamp Thing is after this run changes everything about the character. This is, un- we're starting strong because this is undoubtedly the highlight of the night. Uh, and you, you read the talent here. As, as much shit as we want to give Killing Joke, this story is Alan Moore at his absolute best. Karen Berger on edits. The art here is incredible. I was reading 51 and like I just got to the splash page and I'm like, holy fuck. It's Swamp Thing erupting out of this floor, like exploding into this blossom of, of flowers and just rage. And God damn, it's so good. And then the second part, the, the Swamp Thing Redwood Kaiju splash page. Oh, fuck. Like, I think 52 was a just a smidge stronger on the art, but they were both fantastic. Total Ben, who did 53, is much more of a horror artist. So him doing all the kind of bucolic scenes around Gotham, I don't think that played as much to his strengths. While the end of that issue, as Swamp Thing burns, is right in Total Ben's wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. 53 got stronger as it went on. Uh, but man, there was so much good to look at in 52. Oh, yeah. That, that eruption... As Swamp Thing heads into Gotham, the lines of foliage that follow him and everyone's reaction to them. The court scene, the way Veitch draws the reactions of Swamp Thing's, as you said, his eruption from the ground. Abby's sort of spaced out look as she's talking to him psychically. Moore's Swamp Thing is one of his best works, and this two-parter is two of the best issues of this run. And I, not to pat myself on the back, but I did a little bit of it as some extra reading. Uh, I read 51 as a lead-in for this because, uh, for whatever reason, my comicsology book five of, uh, of the series and trade was just cheaper. I don't know how that worked out, but 51 is, is so much about like the shame and the public scorn and just, just the whole world bearing down on this relationship. And I thought this was a remarkable sort of allegory for queer love. And I really enjoyed it from that perspective. And for, what'd you say? 86? 86. What an just an amazing, like powerful story for not just now, but especially for 1986. Yeah, it's one of these things where I I guess when I had I read this myself the first time, this two-parter 
99 or 2000. And then, because I got these two as back issues on their own. Surprisingly, boy, that Batman on the cover. You think Matt saw them as back issues and thought he bought them. Huh. But I read the whole arc when it came out in trade, which, you know, this is might be from the 80s, but of course they weren't trading things like this back then. They didn't start trading this whole run until around that time. And I wound up getting this whole, this arc probably in 01 or 02. And yeah, it, it holds up so well, especially in that allegorical way, because it's so obviously when read now, especially now with the way the courts have been treating rights that were already established, an allegory for the government coming at someone for simply loving another person. But yeah, in uh, in 51, there's specifically the scene of her attorney sitting down with her and saying, you're being charged with crimes against nature. And like, that is, that's such a powerful statement in at a time. And, and this, this is before Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, when states could still have laws criminalizing consensual homosexual sex. And uh, it's just, again, the, the, just the, the storytelling here just blew me away. And then you get to 52 and 53, where Swamp Thing has so much rage and he is literally tearing ass through the countryside to get to Gotham. And he's there to just fucking bring the whole city down until his love is released. This is just some fucking powerhouse comics. And Batman's best bit in this entire two-parter has nothing to do with when he's confronting Swamp Thing because Swamp Thing just beats him. I mean, he gets is, choked the fuck out. Yeah. But it's the best moment in the whole book is when Batman is confronting the mayor about this because there's a couple of lines earlier on where Batman is clearly not happy about having to enforce what he considers an unjust law. And Batman is very much a cop in this. He is very much lawful good Batman, which looking at it now in 2022 is weird. But 1986 is right on the line. It's right around the times of Dark Knight and things. So Batman is not as willing to stand up to the law as he would have been. But when he's talking to the mayor about, oh, something that's not human. Hmm. What about Hawkman? What about Starfire? What about Captain Adam? Oh, the guy who lives in Metropolis. Yep. And that's the one the mayor's like, oh, shit. We are fucking around with stuff. We have no idea what we're doing. And is it Bruce calls him out on it. And it's like, that's, that's a great, and again, that's a Batman moment. That's Batman looking at a problem and finding the solution. That is the one that cuts right to the heart of it. The one that with the path of least resistance, which is how Batman should work. He's a detective. He's a genius. He shouldn't be just throwing himself at swamp thing over and over again when there's a better way to solve the problem. Yeah, he's he's a detective. He's he's a genius. He figures things out. Even in something like the Haikatia, uh, where he is more or less doing kind of the same thing here. He's a cop. He's trying to bring somebody in. Um, even in the Haikatia, he tries to, you know, think his way out of it and becoming a, you know, a supplicant there at the end. There's so much good in this two-part story 
we get to the point in in the second issue because basically if you haven't read it and we haven't i guess said it flat out at the end of part one when gotham won't release abby because she's been imprisoned there and is going to be extradited down to louisiana to be tried for indecency uh swamp thing gives them an hour to release her and when they don't he just starts to grow everything in gotham and the city is slowly being taken over and turned into a jungle and you see the way people are reacting to it and it's really a cool beat that not everyone is terrified that there are a lot of people who are embracing this and there are some people who are worshiping swamp thing and why wouldn't you um he turns gotham into eden right he doesn't he doesn't hurt anybody uh he gives them some uh sweet potatoes that they trip balls on Uh, but you know as far as like taking over the city it's relatively harmless even even at the end when he goes away everyone says yeah there's a little bit of structural damage but everything is going back to normal have you read the rest of the more swamp thing i take it you haven't no these three issues were my first taste it's so interesting to watch the evolution of swamp thing in this run from the sort of muck monster that he was before Moore took over to a god by this point in the series. And to watch him become both more alien and more human at the same time. Because, yeah, he's a god here. He has all of this power. But his motivation is one of the most basic motivations you can give a character. He's there to protect the person he loves. And it's something so very relatable. And again, what this story does so well is tell so much of it from her side. And again, I know I'm falling back on my extra reading, but 51 is so good. Just showing, again, all of this pain and misery that's been brought to bear upon her. And it's so much stronger in seeing the story from her eyes. It really is. This is this is knock your socks off comics. And one thing I will point out, there is one thing here that is still very 80s. And it's something we've seen over and over again in comics we've read in the 80s. TV news as narration. <laughs> 53 is narrated by this newscaster that we see every bit as Swamp Thing changes Gotham, we learn about it through the newscast until the very end when we finally see the guy not in front of the camera, in front of the courthouse as Swamp Thing manifests to meet with Abby. And that's painful, that end, where they're reunited just for him to be quote-unquote killed. It was it was a real downer of an ending, but we'll talk tonight about uh, endings that come out of nowhere. This one felt you know reasonable. Yeah, we had Luthor skulking about earlier in the story. 
And it makes you want to read the next one. It makes you want to read. I, I know Batman is probably not featured in 54, but seems like he would be real pissed about what happened. Yeah, you would, you would imagine. And speaking of Luthor, this is an interesting time for Luthor because this is coming out right at the same time as Burns' Man of Steel. So this Luthor is more akin to the corporate raider Luthor of that in the way the government is coming to him and not the supervillain Luthor. But you're never entirely sure where this falls in that continuity. I do believe Bruce does have a cameo in... 54 but it's he's barely there he's there for a couple panels it's mostly that's an abby issue it's her and chester the hippie who becomes a regular swamp thing supporting character after this arc after his experience earlier on with the the psychedelic tubers that are a whole swamp thing thing if you got to go back and read swamp thing Oh boy, I believe it's 33. I'm going to... 34, excuse me. So I'm thinking 34, Rite of Spring, is the first issue with those psychedelic tubers. And it is one of the most erotic, without being sexual, comics you could ever encounter. Because it's about how Abby and Swamp Thing can't have sex because he's not human. So he literally grows this tuber and she eats of his flesh and has this like psychedelic journey with him in the green. And it's gorgeous. It's one of one of the major issues of Moore's run that the anatomy lesson, the first major issue, 21, uh, 37, the first appearance of John Constantine, things like that. But it's it's a major issue in this run i would uh gladly read more of this this was this was a fun time yeah i mean definitely moore's entire run is available over the course of i believe six trades five or six and every one of them is worth it and yes this is narration heavy but it's beautifully written oh yeah this i we have failed to mention the prose to this point uh this is some good shit just the way more describes the jungle the way more gets into swamp things feelings this is just one example and and sorry to cut you off no no this is from the beginning of 52 as as swampy is is racing to gotham his power moves crackling through the earth that erupts with unseasonal life at its touch leaving a razor slash of furious green across the gray fields behind him. They don't write them like that anymore. No, we, we have our issues with Killing Joke. We have, I have some issues with some of Moore's latter day work, but this is a master at his best. It's metaphor that is both obvious but not clubbing you over the head with it you see what he's talking about but he's never oh you see the message 
look at read the message i'm just trying to think if there's anything else we talked about that phenomenal the beautiful splash pages the final splash page of the ish of the books with batman holding abby over swamp things burning form is great the the use of the bugs i love it that swamp thing is just like oh well overgrowing your city hasn't really helped so i'm just gonna increase the pollen count and attract every awful stinging insect that i can let's see how much you like that the one thing I didn't like, and I think this was more present in 52 than in 53, you don't have to have Harvey eating in every panel. Like, that's that's too much. That's making him more like some kind of slob monster. Yes, he's overweight. Yes, he is untidy. You don't have to constantly go to it. I'll give you that. And if that, But if that is our biggest complaint about these two issues... Uh, yeah, we're we're really searching for something. Uh, I think I think I'm good. I don't have anything else. That means it's time to put the swamp thing number fifty two and fifty three, the Garden of Earthly Delights, on the big board. We are plugging along and on our way to two hundred stories. Right now, we are at one fifty six. Number one is Batman Year One. Down at number 30 is No Law and a New Order, the first arc of No Man's Land. Down at number 60, we've got Batman the Spirit. Coming in at 69, it's Batman number 48 to 411, the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd. At number 90 is the Gotham Villains 80th Anniversary Giants. Down at 120, we have Haunted from Legends of the Dark Knight, volume 2, numbers 7 and 8. And... Bringing up that rear spot, Batman White Knights. Did it? So yeah, we're we're up we're we're up near the top. Oh yeah, this this is gonna pain me to do this. This is gonna hurt because this is gonna bump one of my books out. This has to be top twenty. Like this is a fantastic fucking story. The art, the writing, just it's just brilliant. Yes, the only thing, honestly, that keeps it out of the top 10 is the fact that it is not a bat it's a batman's there but it's a swamp thing story it's not yeah. a batman story yeah but uh, it is a just a magnificent example of what you can do with comics my opening bid is the new number 15 that puts it right below new frontier another story that is supremely brilliant comics but is just not that much of a batman book yeah. And just as an example of how ridiculous this list is getting, uh, that means bumping down Nightfall Part One. And I'm I'm all for it, but man, this is this is a fool's errand what we're doing, Matt. <laughs> yeah. And I mean part of me is like Nightfall is a much more important Batman story, but this is one of the greatest comic book writers of all time at his best writing a story that still resonates today and writes a really good Batman in it. A Batman who is in that transitional period from the, you know, Batman of the sixties and seventies to the dark Knight of the eighties and nineties and writes a story that works with that. 
as much as I want to put it higher, like that's that's literally as high as it can go. Just because Batman is such an ancillary character, almost like an afterthought, but his presence in there absolutely works. And again, it is just such a wonderful story. Then it is our new number 15. The second story of the night is The Brave and the Mold. This is Batman Volume 3, number 23. The writer is Tom King, with pencils by Mitch Gerrids, inks and colors also by Gerrids, uh, letters by Clayton Cowles, and edited by Mark Doyle, Jamie S. Rich, Rebecca Taylor, Molly Mahan, and Maggie Howell. Cover date is July of 2017. A murdered man once more draws Swamp Thing to Gotham. And the investigation by Batman and Swamp Thing reveals deep truths about life, death, and the cycle that links them. I'm not 100% sure why there are five editors on this book. I have a feeling like that was something weird on the DC wiki, but I wasn't going to dig through it. So if I'm wrong on that, I apologize, but blame the DC wiki. So we're back in Tom King country. Hmm. I would like to start with a rather long detour. But I think it's it's such a good roast of Tom King. I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but this is from Ryan O'Sullivan's Fearscape over at Vault. And this was the very first issue. And it's a, it's a very meta book about creativity and creation and and human. I don't know. It's, it's deep and weird and it's a lovely read. But uh, this is how he opens. And he opens with, the nine panel grid uh, and it's white and just the, the, the following text. And I won't read all of it, but again, this is like sub writing uh, Tom King. Forgive me, dear reader, for arranging this page in the usual grid format. This accursed cage, the literary shorthand of the lazy faux formalist. It is one, which, one with which I am sure you are familiar. It is common for writers to use this arrangement to declare themselves the protege of those who came before, those men we watch, and from all whom we learn all the wrong lessons. Minor writers never seek to reinvent the world. They only ever rearrange toys, each time hoping for something new to emerge from their play. But these minor authors are not alone in the blame for the current sorry state of affairs. We, readers, you and I, allow ourselves to be charmed by this totem too. It is not that the grid is significant, but rather that it reminds us of significance. We confuse the sign for the very thing it is pointing toward. And I have never been able to take Tom, T- Tom King seriously after reading that. And of course, nine panel grid is all over this book. Nearly half of the pages of this book are a nine panel grid. Of a 20 page comic, nine pages are a nine panel grid. Jesus. And I didn't even count beyond that, but there's a bunch that are, uh, I think, five panel horizontals. Uh, Tom King, especially when working with Mitch Gerrids, is a formalist. His comics are as much, if not more, about form than function. And Which I is think- kind of a shame, and sorry to interrupt once again, but Jared's is fucking great. Like, I wish the art here was shittier. Because <laughs> Tom King is just stepping all over it. I would love to interview Tom King and not ask him disrespectfully, but just that I would love to know 
what at this point he feels like he is bringing to comics by reusing form over and over again. Why he isn't trying to do something different as opposed to using the same trick that Alan Moore, speaking of, used in Watchmen back in 1986 over and over again. And so many of his projects just seem gimmicks. That's why we just started and kind of abandoned Killing Time. I mean, yes, it's right there in the title, but this it can be exhausting trying to read his work. And what we see again here, he more than I think any other writer, I, I want to read a Tom King comic with a little button I can press that makes that trombone wah, wah, <laughs> every time there is a building street or something named after a, a creator because he does it so much. The Ween Wrightson Tower in this one, named for the creators of Swamp Thing. <sighs> it's gotten to the point when you know you're reading a Tom King comic, it throws you out because it's just, I get it. I get it. And I respect the idea of respecting those who came before. But at this point, it's just, you're, you're, you've done it too much and it's shtick. At this yeah. point, it doesn't feel like respect. It feels like shtick. Yeah, put put their names in the credits and respect the work that they did. But otherwise, you don't know. You don't have to keep going to that. But the actual story here is a murder mystery. This is a guy is found dead in a room in Gotham. And he is, as it turns out, Swamp Thing's birth father. Which, as far as I know, this is the first time we ever knew that that, that was a thing for Alec Holland. That Holland wasn't technically the name he was born with or any of that. I think that is something that King just sort of retcons in here to tell this story. which is kind of a Tom King thing to do. But then we get a fairly straightforward murder mystery until you get to the end. Ugh. And, and we, we've got the total of the second appearance. The villain in this book is a guy named Headhunter who appeared once before in one of the run-up to Nightfall issues where Bruce is getting worn down and this you know palooka actually puts up kind of a fight. Which, you know, a non-exhausted Batman, this guy, yeah, right. But he still has that same design from the 90s. And that is a very 90s design with the mohawk and the teeth and all of this. And yeah, he, he looks like a clown here. King plays him as a joke. He plays him as more of a joke than he plays Kite Man. Hell yeah. <laughs> I do kind of want to do a Kite Man episode just because one of the things that I do, I do like King's take on Kite Man. And I do like kind of what he did to redeem that character. But here he, he's also kind of a, a complete joke. Like Bruce just shows up and like, yeah. tell me. This issue is best when it's doing little things. 
I love Alfred just having to clean after Swamp Thing. As Swamp that Thing was good. Getting leaves while sitting in a chair in Wayne Manor. Or Swamp Thing and Batman crammed into the Batmobile. Or Swamp Thing making a, a teacup out of himself and drinking from it. Yes. And again, this is just Jared's just doing amazing things with the art. These are little moments and we lauded more in the previous story for his philosophy and for the way he tells these emotional stories. This, on the other hand, we get the beginnings when Swamp Thing is originally talking to Batman about the circle of life and death that you are born, you consume, you die, you are consumed and are thus reborn in what you are consumed by, the, the, the cycle of life and death. And you can see Bruce taking some comfort in that. Because remember, this King run has a lot about Bruce and his relationship with Thomas Wayne especially as this is right after the button where Bruce encountered Thomas in the Flashpoint world before coming back and before Thomas comes over into this world, before we realize he's come into this world. And fathers and sons will always touch a nerve for Bruce. So Swamp Thing with his father, his biological father, is a thing that would affect Bruce in a way. And then when you get to the end and Swamp Thing again gives into his rage and brutally murders Headhunter. But beautifully. Yes, it was gorgeous to watch. But he just kills him. Kills him good. And Batman is enraged for basically being a patsy. That Swamp Thing used him to get to this guy so he could kill him. Bruce, to me, read more petulant than anything else, especially at the very end where he was like, tell me about my parents. Tell me about death. Like none of that felt earned. And if King was focused more on just telling that story rather than concentrating so much on form, I I want substance over form, not form over substance. I think this would have been a much stronger book, but that that ending did not hit me in a good spot. Yeah, the, the screaming coward over and over again is petulant is the exact word for it. And again, the, the use of the song Wild Irish Rose over and over again is again, it's form over function. It's, oh, I have this motif. So let me work the motif into the book over and over again. And two, I think there should be, at least in my read, there's there's an understanding that Swamp Thing is a little bit less than human. So Batman should expect that, you know, there's there's not going to be the same sort of calculation that he would undergo here. This that shouldn't have come as such a surprising moment. Since you haven't read the Moore stuff, what Moore establishes is that Swamp Thing isn't Alec Holland. Swamp Thing is this 
creature of nature that had Alec Holland's memories grafted onto it. He isn't, you know, a reborn human. He is something more than that. So he is exactly that. He is not human by any stretch of the imagination. That might have been changed around a little after the New 52 and some of the stuff there, because there was a whole thing that's altered that. But who knows where continuity lies with any of that at this point, whether this is Alec Holland in a Swamp Thing body now or not. But yeah, Swamp Thing is not, the Swamp Thing after Alan Moore is not human by any stretch of the imagination, which is something very different from what we'll see in our final story of the night. But we'll get there in a few minutes. The middle of the book, again, when Batman's out there plugging along on the streets and Okay, guy was killed in the 84th floor of a building without any entrance. Tracked down Kite Man. Kite Man hawked one of his kites at a pawn shop. Go to the pawn shop. Follow the pawn shop to the exotic weapons broker. It's detective work. It, it makes sense for Batman to do it. And when Batman's like, well, I, you know, this guy's incredibly hard to find. And so I'm like, oh, he's right there. I, I'm in touch with all the plants. I know the grass he was walking over. There we go. And Batman's like, we'll take my car. And it's kind of like, okay, fine. You think you can do that? I'm going to make you squeeze into my car. Huh. Why do you need a car? Why do you need a body? I mean, there are moments to like here, right? Oh. That the, the, the detective work is good. I like the moments with Gordon trying to come to terms with like this swamp creature monster oh okay this is a thing that's real now all right for jim that makes so much sense i mean he deals with all sorts of weird ass criminals sure but he's not always dealing with monsters so it's it's kind of nice to see that even old jim gordon can get surprised every now and then Surprised enough to drop his pipe. Yes. We will read Tom King that is infinitely more frustrating than this. Mm. this. This is still nowhere near as tear your hair out frustrating as some of the Tom King we are going to get to eventually. Alfred's death, definitely more frustrating. A lot of, once Thomas Wayne shows up, the Ugh. yeah, everything after cold days, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there, yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are a couple good issues in there, but pretty much everything after cold days is a, a pretty is kind of a slog, yeah. City of Bane was uh, well, less said the better, yeah, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, we will we will discuss that eventually. We're, we're, we've discussed this story, though, now that we're, we're getting into the Tom King of it. So I think we're good. That means it's time to put Batman number 23, the brave and the mold on the big board. What other Tom King? I got Most... it right here for you. I okay. got it right here. Just like the last Tom King that we read. Pretty but not great otherwise down at number 104 
41, 43, everyone loves Ivy. I think this works a little better than everyone loves Ivy. Agreed. Because there is so many leaps of logic in that story. This one doesn't have that much of that mess. And this doesn't do damage to a character like we saw in that story. Right. Minor damage incurred to Batman, but every everyone else survived this story pretty well. Yeah. Although I don't know how much higher than that it goes. No, I mean, you got Clown at Midnight at 97. Um, I, I mean, listen, I would read Blades again before this, but I think you would too. I think Blades yeah. still does much more than this. Jared's art has to factor into this somehow because True. it is really, really good to look at. The art is better than 99 in the second part of Injustice, but that still has uh, Alfred beating the shit out of Superman. I love Alfred smacking Superman around. You will leave this family alone. As much as I love Klaus Jensen's art, I think this is probably better than Death and the Maidens. Death and the Maidens was overlong. It has some weird stuff going on in it. Not good Rucka. Not Rucka anywhere near his best. It does not, this does not have some of the stuff that makes you uncomfortable like Death and the Maidens and Living Hell do. Agreed. We want to make this the new 100? I think this is the new 100. And now our final story of the night is the Delta Connection. This is Brave and the Bold, Volume 1, number 176. The writer is Martin Pascoe, with pencils and inks by Jim Aparo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Jim Aparo, and edited by Paul Levitz. The cover date is July of 1981. A trip to the bayou to find Catwoman's missing escaped convict sister leads Batman to find a swamp thing who feels lost. The case will see death and maybe a glimmer of hope for the swamp thing. So this story is written by Martin Pascoe, who is a journeyman writer. He is one of these guys who has written a little bit of everything and wrote a ton of comics in the 70s and 80s, as well as a ton, ton of animation. He was one of the brain trusts behind Mask of the Phantasm, for instance, uh, and wrote parts, uh, other episodes of Batman the Animated Series, uh, The Tick. I mean, this is a guy who's written a lot of stories he's only three issues of brave in the bowl but a lot of dc comic presents a lot of adventure comics action comics he's the guy who wrote the cobra the cult of cobra series more, more much more superman than batman but still he's a, a a bit of a dab hand and jim aparo is the definitive batman artist of the bronze age at least from I, I guess neil adams but neil adams and aparo are the two sort of main artists of batman in that era this also oh, sorry i was just gonna just a brief aside speaking of animation fucking hbo max oh <laughs> Kill, killing that new series yeah 
we, we will be doing an episode pretty soon of some Ed Brubaker just because they show disrespect to Ed Brubaker. We will respect him here, goddammit. Hopefully oh. it's going to get picked up somewhere else, but Jesus. That, HBO the, Max getting scrapped for parts. Yeah. I mean, the, the number of things that they've taken down, was like, damn it, that was on my watch list. That was on my watch list. In the immortal words of Dr. John Zoidberg, screw you. <laughs> at, at least the uh, the Aqua Teen movie that had been slated for HBO Max is uh, going to get released straight to video. So new Aqua Teen in your life. Yeah, I'm hoping the same for the Venture Brothers movie that was supposed to wrap up the entire series. God be with you on that one. Oh, I would be so mad if that... Because it was, it was released... The Venture Brothers was in the same uh, slate of projects with the Aqua Teens movie. So I'm hoping that that slate is all going to get direct to home video or whatever we call it nowadays release. But yeah, back to this story. This one was published three years before Alan Moore took over Swamp Thing with the anatomy lesson. So this is still the original conception of Swamp Thing, which is much more a Frankenstein's monster than anything else. Yeah, just thinking about it, you have a lot in common with, uh, with Darkman, right? A, a scientist who's disfigured and he, uh, he takes vengeance upon those who disfigured him, uh, fights for uh, a lost love and uh, tries to do right by everyone else. But this is a creature that's a bit more, as you said, Frankenstein. It's the, the consciousness is not quite there. It's more disjointed. It's more confused. It is less the good Dr. Holland and more shambling monster. And it's also, the Swamp Thing here is severely depressed. A comic that had come out a little later than 1981 would have probably leaned more into the mental health stuff that is going on for Swamp Thing here because he's basically suicidal. He just wants to root into the ground and lose his consciousness because no one's going to love him. And that's hard stuff that is really just kind of there and the end is very oh i had this one lovely interaction and now i'm feeling better which i can understand that the you know sometimes when someone is in that darkest place a simple act of kindness can help them start to find their way back but that's start to find their way back when someone's at that point it takes a lot for them to find their way home. And it's sort of treated like a panacea here. But this is a Brave and the Bold. Have you done any Brave and the Bolds? I'm trying to remember. We did, I mean, other than the animated one. Yeah, we have not. This is our first issue of the classic Brave and the Bold. These are weird books. Brave yeah. and the Bold always took place sort of right to the side of continuity it never exactly lined up with what was going on especially during the the bob haney run but that was bob haney's thing but this is oh boy this is a weird book 
especially because, as I mentioned in the synopsis, Catwoman suddenly has a sister and a sister named Felicia, by the way. For those of you out there who have never really read Spider-Man, the Black Cat, Spider-Man's cat burglar, cat-themed nemesis, is Felicia Hardy. So I have to imagine that that was Pasco intentionally making some kind of comment. Well, she doesn't stick along, uh, stick around long. No, she does not. She is... Is she even frigged? I don't think she's really frigged because her death isn't there to motivate... I guess it's to motivate Swamp Thing. So yeah, I guess it is a frigging. Because he gets her confused with, uh, with Linda. Yeah, he's his dead wife. Oh, I didn't realize that Pasco passed away last year. Or two years ago. Huh, that's a shame. But I mean, what we get in this is a little mystery. It's Batman goes down because Felicia has escaped from jail because someone was, you know, she believed that someone was going to try to put a hit out on her in jail. And so we get a, you know, Batman in the bayou and there's a hitman and a fisherman and... Felicia and her ghost and it's a lot of elements all over the place that don't really perfectly gel uh no but there is some delightful Cajun dialogue oh is there ever the uh the fisherman and his mama the prison break as a power failure that you word me you bring a friend I see loving? We're not quite Claremontian, but we're kind of close. Good Louisiana place names. Atchafalaya. That's a name. <laughs> <laughs> it says the guy who lives next to Pennsylvania, a state that I think relishes its weird place names that are impossible to pronounce. And you get your GPS trying to say some of them and it just gets so confused. Then again, my GPS calls, says the Walt Whiteman Bridge. So I, I think I have the world's worst GPS voice. Not an English major, that one. No, no. You get to the end and Batman's final clue as to who the killer is or the clue that the ghost of Felicia gives. Sure, that's fine. But I don't know, this story... There are great Brave and the Bolds, as weird as they are. There's some wonderful ones. I kind of now wish we had read the other one where a big game hunter captures Swamp Thing and brings him to Gotham. Because that probably would have been more appropriate with the other two stories of Swamp Thing coming to Gotham. But I thought, oh, hey, let's have one where Batman goes to Swamp Thing. And meh. I, I mean, granted, I don't remember that one any clear. It might have been the same sort of situation. But this is another one of these trifles where I'm not 100% sure how much there is to say about it. Batman does fly a whirly bat. I, I, I love the, the little one-man helicopter whirly gig whirly bats. That's uh, something that goes back to the golden age. And I love anytime it pops up again. Crashes that some bitch directly into Swamp Thing. Yeah. And again, this is a Swamp Thing who doesn't realize that he's not tied to one body. This is a Swamp Thing who still thinks that he is a muck monster and not an elemental. And we get a good 
page and a half of origin of Swamp Thing for anybody who's not familiar with the character, which is what you got a lot of in Brave and the Bold because there were plenty of people who were reading this book just for Batman. I guess we should say, just for those of you out there who aren't familiar, Brave and the Bold was the Batman team-up comic of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. This was a comic where every issue, Batman would team up with somebody. And it could be a character as common as the Flash or as obscure as the Metal Man. And there are, you know, there's a couple of Swamp Things. It's a book that's probably most famous for some Neil Adams issues where Green Arrow got his, the, the modern, very Robin Hoodie costume and the goatee and some Dead Man. And granted, the stories before it became the Batman team up book, where it was the tryout book introduced the Silver Age science fiction version of Hawkman and the Justice League. The Justice League's first appearance was in A Brave and the Bold before it was a Batman book. But from about issue 60 to somewhere in the 50s or 60s to 200, it was every issue was Batman teaming up with somebody. We will be doing plenty more Brave and the Bold over the years because there's a lot of them and a lot of them are really weird. Oh, Teen Titans. Also, the Teen Titans made their first appearance in A Brave and the Bold, too, back in its tryout book days. But yeah, outside of that history, I mean, Felicia's never really a character in this book, is she? She's really just sort of there. Yeah, she she appears as a damsel, and the distress does not end well for her. No. And we see Selina here. This is early to mid-80s reformed ally to Batman, Selina, and a Selina who doesn't know the secret at this point, because she's going to Bruce, you know, thinking, oh, every time I let Bruce know something, Batman somehow finds out, and I need Batman to go and save my sister. And since it's internal monologue, there's no reason for her to, you know, be winking at us that she doesn't realize that Batman is really Bruce Wayne. You know, for anything else, there are some really neat action sequences here. Jim Aparo draws a great action scene. The fight between Swamp Thing and our hitman and the fisherman. The the final chase on the the fan boats is, is visually very nice. It's just there isn't a ton of meat on the bones of this story. No, as with uh, so many of the ones we've we talk about, not exclusively in this era, but as we've pointed out before, it's it's a trifle. I mean, a, a fun little book, but just all the narration that just constantly moves the plot along, exposition, 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 characters that aren't that well defined who just pop in and they they pop out again. This. Once you know the story here, that's that's really about it. And while there would have been a lot of interesting material if you wanted to delve into Swamp Thing's existential crisis, it's not really defined. It's just like, hey, Swamp Thing's depressed. He's trying to take root. And this woman tripping over him woke him up and now he's out there. 
and he's involved and in the end he's better it's not a lot to to do and that's that's brave and the bolds in a lot of ways they're just sort of they're designed to be fun they're designed to be a one-off to you know let a writer and an artist tell a story they're not meant to be looked at years later as something important there's a few towards the end uh the autobiography of bruce wayne very specifically at i believe it's 197 that i would love that we'll cover someday there's a a great a couple of really fun batman joker team-ups there's a great batman wildcat with the joker but this one is is it is a very functional comic and more than that it's a fun comic this comic was written back in 1981 when nobody ever thought anybody would read these comics after they fell apart from a bunch of kids passing them around on the playground. And yet we have them now digitally. And this is another one that's been uh, recolored for some reason. Yeah, definitely tightened up. I think all of the, I, I still don't know. There's There's all sorts of questions about how good an idea that is and how it affects the original creators and the original intent. But that is a much bigger discussion than we have time for at nearly 1030 at night on a Wednesday when we both have work in the morning. Uh, excuse me. I'm an academic. Uh, I have work uh, in the afternoon, <laughs> sir. Oh, um, fair, fair. But that means it's time to put the brave and the bold. Number 176, the Delta Connection on the big board. So where are our trifles? They are in the one teens and below. I will say there's nothing offensive in this book. Oh, absolutely. Nothing terrible here. No, which so that puts it probably above 127 above uh, Grim Knight and Gotham. Yeah, but I don't think it goes above uh, Luthor. You're driving me sane at 118, which is another trifle, but a much more fun and wild trifle. Bonkers. Hey, it's Lex Luthor. Let's let's have dinner here in the diner. Yeah. Let's grab a bite. Yeah, we're not going to worry about everyone seeing the crazy clown man and the bold most wanted man on the planet together. That's that's not a problem. What about okay, speaking of other, you know, one shots, one off trifly deals, 124 grounded, the first Batman Beyond ongoing issue where Bruce gets back in the costume and him and Terry throw down. Why is this so low? I think cuz it's just sort of trifly because that probably should have gone a little bit higher. I think I read this before I actually watched the pilot. You, you did. Well, you did. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, I feel like Joker's Double Jeopardy was probably more fun. Bouncing Baby Boy had more substance. 126, last chance. That's the, let's tell the entire origin and first arc of dead man in one issue 
in the, in the one issue. Yeah. I probably put this below that. So maybe this so, goes right above Grim Knight. I can I can definitely go with that. So that makes the Delta connection our new 127. I'm trying to think at this point where the really bad stuff starts at this point. That's probably not down until around 142, even that, 145 probably with war games. Anything war games or below is like, yeah, boy. yeah. Even Days of Rage above that, while it has some real 80s problems, at least was trying to do something noble in some places, but had some real problems in how it did it. So I think it's that bottom like 15 at this point. That's like, oh boy, that's either dull or offensive or dull and offensive. <laughs> Looking at you, White Knight. <laughs> and Superman, Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Let's not forget that. Oof, oof. But that 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 does it for tonight. Next week, to tie in with the release of his new ongoing series, it's finally time for the episode that I've been waiting for. It's a Tim Drake spotlights. Ah, uh, he he is so excited, listeners. He can barely contain himself. We're, look, we're we're taking a week off from recording. Like listeners, you won't you won't notice any difference. But we're taking a week off for, of recording next week just so Matt can have time to prepare and just to be fully vested in this episode. I love it. I can't wait. But we would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, the conduit of outdated joke names. June, come on. Joshua Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> who's just started a brand new job today. Congratulations. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com when new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF, ComicsXF.com, or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. Uh, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>